let's rock and roll. Kia ora, welcome to Dirty Dirty Talk Podcast. How's it going, Mike? I'm good. Hi, Bex. Hi. So I'm super excited about who we have on the show today. We have Dr. Eloise Stevens, and she is an astrophysicist. We're going to be talking to her about exploding stars, Elon Musk, space tourism, feminism in the field of science. Super excited. But before that, let's get to some headlines. Okay, cool. So this is kind of a local a local thing here in here in New Zealand. Uh, the official Wizard of Christchurch has had, sadly, his his contract terminated. The 88-year-old was one of only a small handful of state-employed wizards in the world who got a $16,000-a-year salary, $16, a year salary for his, quote, acts of wizardry and other wizard-like services. He was initially hired by the Christchurch City Council in 1998, but has been wizarding around Christchurch since the mid-70s when he first arrived from the UK. Have you seen this guy before? I have. He's iconic. Yeah. Yeah. He's an icon. So I grew up in Christchurch and I moved. So I, I was born there and I left when I was about seven years old. And I've been back there like heaps because I've got family down there and all the rest of it. And one of my best mates are down there. And I used to see him all the time on his little, he, I think he had he like a little, but essentially a soapbox. He used to hang out yeah, at, at, the, at, the, at the square. Yeah. Yeah, so apparently the Christchurch City Council like, terminated his contract as they want to freshen up their image. Oh, no. How does yeah. he feel about that? He's not happy. No, I can imagine. Well, I'm not happy either, Mike. I think he, he had like a go at the bureaucrats. It's like, oh, the damn bureaucrats. <laughs> like super typical wizarding style. Um, but he said that he's still going to be around. So oh, good. I also read that he hasn't been spending a lot of time out. I mean, he is 88 years old. He's 88. Yeah. yeah, he's he's had a pretty good, pretty good run of things, um, but yeah, he'll be sadly missed. He will be. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's still going to be there, but you know, he'll be sadly missed. Minus sixteen thousand dollars. <laughs> as a as as a state employed <laughs> yeah. wizard. Yeah. Oh, oh, that's a bit sad. Well, from wizards to princes, Mike. Um, in a recent interview with Prince William. He suggested that entrepreneurs should focus on saving Earth rather than engaging in space tourism. He feels that we should be using the great brains and technology that we have to repair the planet rather than exploring the next place that we should inhabit. What do you think about that, Mike? It's pretty topical given the guests we have on the pod today. By golly, isn't it? By golly. I think, um, oh man, this is like a, this is a whole, this is a whole thing. I I don't know. Like, I, I agree with what the prince said. Uh, but I also think, yeah, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. I, I mean, I would wait way more energy and resources into actually saving the planet because actually we need to be doing that. That's really, really important. Um, and they're pouring billions of dollars into sending people into spaces, in my opinion, a bit stupid. Not a bit, actually a lot. Having said that, like, there is still a place for some sort of, like, I don't know, people to do random stuff in space, so. Yeah, I, I think there's a place for it, but I do wonder what the agenda is sometimes behind these people that are um, willing to spend billions of dollars and kind of be the first one to get their fancy rockets up in, into space. Yes, we talk about that shortly, actually. We do. Um, 
So American an American fast food chain Raising Cane's is sending 250 of its corporate workers to the front lines to help out with major staffing shortages in their restaurant. In their restaurants, uh, the US, like much of the rest of the world, uh, the developed world anyway, is having major labor shortages. Many seekers uh, workers seek better pay and conditions than was the case before the pandemic. Have you heard about this? No, I haven't actually. Yeah, it's there's been a big change um from workers they, they just got sick of it They're like uh, you know what i had they had a bit of time off they had you know a couple of months off three four four whatever amount of time off they're like you know what stuff it i'm not going back to my job fair enough yeah um a lot of them were laid off um if they weren't sort of what do you call it put into lockdown sort of stasis or whatever um and yeah so those, a lot of those low pay low low paid employees are now going i yeah i want i want better pay and the workplaces the employers will have to meet those demands essentially otherwise they'll end up like this um which is actually a fantastic win for workers Mm. uh because you know pay increases haven't sort of kept up with the cost of living yeah essentially and so now all these workers have got the power to actually go like you know what i actually want more Mm. um which is great so that's a really good thing yeah, and so they should. I mean, I know you've worked in hospitality and yeah, overworked, underpaid, undervalued. Yeah, and it's a shitty job a mm, lot of the time. It's, absolutely, and you, yeah, and these guys are just like, no, nah, I've had enough, and I'm, I want more money for for the work that I do. That's that's all good. I do think though that this is a a marketing stunt. I mean, we're talking about it on this podcast, so they've done it right. Further afield here. Spain's literary world has been thrown into chaos with a sought-after book prize being awarded to Carmen Mola, an acclaimed female thriller writer who's turned out to be a pseudonym for three men. Yeah, I read it. <laughs> Have you seen this? Yeah, I did. What the heck? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So beyond using the name and identity of a made-up female author, these men have spent years doing fake interviews to lure readers and journalists in. And they said that the idea of profiling the author as a female university professor writing fiction of usually a violent nature has served as a useful marketing tool. I mean, I'm glad that their cover's finally been violently blown. Well, so I read that they got this award and it was like a million euro. Yes. And that forced them to come forward. I.e., if they didn't come forward to claim the prize, then they wouldn't. They they wouldn't have got it. Exactly. So that's when it came out. And they these guys had like a bunch of like screenwriting experience and a whole bunch of other things. I mean, it worked, right? It worked for years. I mean, yeah. The, the question. I mean, it's a kind of factual, but you know, would they have been successful if they hadn't have? Yeah. Had a pseudonym. It's hard to know. How many other pseudonyms are there? Oh, God, I reckon. There could be heaps, eh? Yeah. All right, that's the headlines. Let's talk about Dr. Eloise Stefans. So, Dr. Eloise is a coder, a gamer, an astrophysicist who's smashing down gender stereotype walls as well as smashing people in roller derby. That's a mouthful. That's a mouthful. <laughs> Um, so she was originally born and raised in France, but Eloise moved to the UK to study physics and astronomy at the University of Sheffield. After working as a support astronomer at the Isaac Newton Group in La Palma for a year, she obtained her Master's of Physics in 2015. 
Alois subsequently started a PhD studying the 3D shape of core collapse supernovae and earned her title in spring 2019. In July of that year, she joined the University of Auckland as a research fellow to research the evolution of massive stars to better understand how they die and produce supernovae and kilonovae. Shall we have a chat with her? Let's do it. Welcome to the show, Eloise. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. We are super excited to have you on the podcast today because we think the work that you do is absolutely amazing. Um, we really want to start um, from the beginning and we'd love to know what made you want to become an astrophysicist and what does an astrophysicist even do? Oh my God, that is such a good question because there's actually a lot of confusion about astrophysics, astronomy, all of that stuff. And it's not exactly what people have in mind because obviously you think astronomy, you think looking at the sky, looking at the stars, taking pictures, looking through telescopes. And it doesn't actually reflect what I do day to day because uh, I'm more of a, you know, a, an astrophysicist, more of a like coder and programmer. And I use computers in order to understand stars. Um, so to some of you out there, uh, my day to day job might seem a little boring because it's all looking at a computer and making my own code and and and, and using other people's codes. Uh, but to me, uh, I'm an absolute nerd and I love it. Uh, and I find it amazing that I can use the technology we have today we can use the laptop that i'm using right now to record this um to actually try and understand stars and and how they explode now um i've kind of always been interested in how the universe works uh, a lot of people that i know have these stories about uh you know like getting um um this interest in astronomy by looking at the night sky with their parents, with their grandparents, with their friends, getting their first telescopes when they were a child. And I never really had that experience. Um, I don't know, I, I, that stars are cute and everything, but I was really interested in documentaries and learning about black holes and galaxies and all of these really massive um, like concepts, things that are so hard to wrap your head around, that these massive numbers, either really big or really small and how they all work together. And so I guess I was attracted to like that incredible sense of scale that your brain, your human brain can't comprehend and trying to make sense of it somehow uh, with the power of science. So I'm really, really fortunate that I can do that as a job today. So an astrophysicist, uses math math to sort of understand the world in a sense right um before they use computers they were just sitting down with a pen and pad going wow what is this thing i mean like they were just doing it without computers how, how, how did that work I mean, God, uh, he invented calculus uh, in the middle of a pandemic at the age of 22 when he was bored and in his home. Uh, I mean, uh, you just had to do it by hand. And there's a lot of things that um, you couldn't do. There's a lot of things that you couldn't do at all. If, if there wasn't an analytical solution to a formula that you had, you were kind of screwed. Whereas nowadays, there's bits of mathematics that are so complicated you can't find an answer by hand you can't find a single like result to that equation and so 
instead you solve it numerically that's the way that we use basically you throw a whole bunch of numbers at it and see what comes out of it and if you do that millions of times then you can approximate a solution but you can't do that by hand as a human it would take a lifetime so you use computers instead um and it's and it's a lot a big part of the work that we do actually this is so cool. I'm just, oh, I love it. I'm nerding out right now. I just, I'm super fascinated. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm super fascinated by the work that you've done. I've done, I've, I've done a, a bit of a deep dive into, into your blog. And if I understand it correctly, um, a lot of the research that you've done is on core collapse of massive stars and the supernova that comes from it. And if I understand it correctly, um, this is when you have like a star that's pretty big. And as I read it, is at least eight times the mass of our sun. And when it sort of runs out of fuel, there's a big explosion that comes from that. What exactly have you researched with regards to supernova and what's exciting about this field of astrophysics for you? So my research in particular was focused on trying to understand the three-dimensional shape of the supernova when it's really young. So the three-dimensional shape of the explosion. Because this is these things happen so far away that when the light reaches the Earth, it's basically a single point. So like zero-dimensional, essentially. And so in order to retrieve the shape from this point of light, you have to do some really fancy things and look at the polarization of the light in all of the colors of the rainbow. Now, uh, it's a pretty tricky technique that has a very complicated name. It's called spectropolarimetry, which is, there's too many syllables in that word, too many syllables, like it's already unacceptable. And it's a, it's a pretty difficult observational technique to do, like you just breathe on the data and it just goes blah, and it takes years to, uh, to, to analyze. And so I got to study uh, quite a few core collapse supernovae with that technique. And some of the things that we find is, first of all, the explosion is uh, absolutely not spherical. Um, we've, we've had evidence of that through the spectropolarimetry observations since the, the mid 90s and early 2000s. Uh, and it was really like trying to um, make more a more complete data set uh, with, with, with more observations, because it's so rare to find a supernova that has that gives us enough light that allows us to use that very complicated technique. So it was, it was basically trying to do that and figure out what elements are where in the explosions, because you can try and recreate basically a, a little image of the explosion. Where's the calcium? Where's the, where's the oxygen? All of that with just one dot of light in the night sky. And it's, it's a really exciting technique, but if I'm honest, it was really exciting in the 90s. Um, in 2020, you know, not sure I'm going to base my career on that. And it's one of the reasons that I changed field because we've kind of squeezed a lot of information out of these very difficult observations, but without really um, making fantastic strides in the modeling, uh, there isn't, it, you know, uh, further big discoveries are maybe a few years away, or maybe people will just get bored of wrestling with the data and do something else instead, like I have. <laughs> So Eloise, I'm pretty fresh to astrophysics. So I have a couple of questions. Um, so firstly, how long does a supernova last? And like if I was to pull out a telescope tonight, would I be able to see one? Is there any way of preempting or any signs that there might be that before they explode? Oh, that is such a good question. So first of all, a supernova will last um, well, it's kind of it's kind of an interesting question because the actual light that you see can take years to fade fully. 
right? Like to properly fade away for the shock of the explosion to fade into nothingness into the, the interstellar medium, like space, interstellar space, actually takes thousands and thousands of years. But when we detect the light of a supernova, which is extremely powerful, it's, it's as much energy released in an instant as, uh, or like over the course of a few weeks, but it's an instant in, on the scale of the universe, uh, as the sun will release in its entire lifetime. So as, as the what, sorry, as, as the what? As the sun will release in its entire lifetime. It's amazing. Wow. One explosion. It can, wow. it can actually outshine, yeah. outshine its cool. host galaxy. It's, it's crazy. Wow. Like literally, you see pictures of supernovae, there's a bright, like torch, and then the set, the bolt of a galaxy, and then the same brightness. And it's not CGI, it's actually real. Wow. So they're, they're incredibly powerful. And so that's why we get to see them from uh, such like faraway distances. The supernovae that we see are from other galaxies. All of them are from other galaxies. And that light that you're going to be able to see for, for a while usually lasts a few weeks. Now, whether you in the background, in the, in the, in the backyard of your house will be able to see it, uh, there's a few, um, you know, a few supernovae that maybe you can observe every year that are bright enough for people with like decent amateur telescopes, um, like, you know, not quite a few. It depends on how good your amateur telescope is. Some of them can cost, like set you back thousands and thousands of dollars and be ridiculously right. good. Um, so you can see, you can see thousands if you have the right equipment, but uh, if you've got the little you know <laughs> lens and everything, uh, it might be a little bit a little bit more difficult. As for predicting supernovae, unfortunately we can't. Uh, they just kind of go boom, and then you see them in the night sky. There are signs, uh, like in theory, uh, the, physically speaking, that there there are precursor signs. It's the neutrinos, um, and uh, so neutrinos are tiny, 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 tiny subatomic particles, which are extremely light, some of the lightest things in, in the universe, and they move basically at the speed of light. And they are released when the core of the star uh, in the core collapse uh, turns into a neutron star. So the protons and the electrons are smashed together and they release a whole bunch of neutrinos. Actually, most of the energy of the supernova turns into neutrinos. So those, you know, the supernovae where, the, where they can outshine their host galaxy, that's only a percent of a percent of the total energy. Ah, uh, I wow. see. Most, so most of it's neutrinos that are being, that's where Mo most of the 99% is. is going to be neutrinos. Ah. And, uh, and those neutrinos, unfortunately, don't interact, you know, with, with, with things in the universe. We, we get a sea of neutrinos pa passing through us every second, like 70 billion neutrinos uh, pass through you every second from the sun. And they never interact. They can go right through the earth and they're very difficult to detect. Uh, but if the supernova was in the galaxy, we would be able to catch a few. There's one supernova from 1987 that occurred in the Large Magellanic Cloud, which is um, a satellite galaxy of our own, which actually you can see from the Southern Hemisphere. So you can, you can check it out from New Zealand, which is great. And, uh, and that supernova was close enough that uh, retroactively people went looking for the neutrinos in the, in the neutrino detectors, and oh. they found like 11 or 12, something like that. They found so, 11 or 12 neutrinos. <laughs> yeah, like, like literally, like you can count them. <laughs> here's what neutrino, here's two. That's amazing. I mean yeah, and, and the statistics associated with it, so it's going to be like 
11 plus or minus you know, 2.3 neutrinos or something like that. I don't, I don't wow. know. I don't know, you know, but yeah, um, a dozen neutrinos. Um, so when you moved on from your supernova research, you moved into kilonova research. Is that is that what I read? Yeah, kilonova, absolutely. A different okay, type cool. of stellar explosion. All right. I'll, I'll try and I'll, I will ask this question as, I don't know, as dumb as I might sound, but I'll try. I'll give it a crack. But like a kilonova is when two neutron stars collide, right? Basically. Yes. And they make like a, a super big supernova. Well, that's not a supernova. That's more or less. It's, yeah, it's not, it's, it's, it's so it's not a supernova, but there, there are similarities with a supernova, which is why it kind of got its name. Sounds so, the same. Yeah. So the, the, the term supernova, see, here's the thing. These classifications are based on observations. And so it's an absolute clusterfuck because, mm. uh, because <laughs> you know, it. astronomers see, see new things and they're like, that's new. It's like the same, or like, oh, that's like the same thing that I saw yesterday. I'm going to give it the same name. And then it turns out to not be the same thing. That's how we ended up with supernovae because people used to observe novae. So nova just means new in Latin, so new stars. But then in the 1930s, people realized, hold on a minute, there are other galaxies in the universe, you know, not just our own, there are things out there that are so much further than we thought. And so some of these novae are much, much further away than we thought. And so they must be super, super bright in order to look the same brightness, because obviously if you put something further away, it doesn't look, it doesn't look as bright. So if it looks mm. as bright, it must be much brighter. And so people were very, uh, very uh, um, creative about it and called them supernovae without even knowing what they were. Turns out completely different physical phenomenon. Um, but when it came to neutron star mergers, uh, so we knew, uh, the field knew, I say we in the, in the sense of the, the royal we, you know, I wasn't working in that field at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so people knew there was going to be some form of ejector, so stuff thrown out of the merger, and that ejector was going to be radioactive and release light because of the radioactive decay happening in, in the material. And that's very similar to the ejector of supernovae. Supernovae are um, really, really hot and they've got brand new elements that have just been creative, so super radioactive. And because they're super radioactive, they decay, they emit light. And so because of that similarity, they wanted to keep with the theme, the theme of something, something nova. And the reason they went for kilonova is because they realized from their theoretical calculation that it was going to be about a thousand times more energetic than a typical nova, not supernova, typical nova, hence kilonova. And so the kilonovae are actually not as powerful as supernovae. And it makes sense, you know, it, when you think about it, neutron stars, they're tiny objects, they're about the size of a city, they're the size of Auckland. Uh, they're very dense though, they're, they're like one and a half times the mass of the sun, between one and two times the mass of the sun. So that's a lot of matter to pack in a small space. And then they merge together, make a bigger neutron star that quickly collapses to a black hole. And the ejector is only a few tens, tenths, not tens, a few tenths um, or a few hundredths of uh, a solar mass, so the mass of the sun. Whereas in a supernova, you'll have several times the mass of the sun that's being ejected out into space. So it's not the same amount of material. And because it's not the same amount of material, you can't make as much light, right? So that all makes sense. Um, 
but they're still very, very bright, uh, not quite as bright as supernovae, but bright enough uh, so that we can see them from Earth from other galaxies, uh, which is which is really exciting. Are they rare? Like how, how rare? Because you said uh, you alluded to the fact that there'd been calculations made sometime in the past around what these things might be when, say, two neutron stars collide. And then at some point, somebody must have seen it or, or whatever and then go, oh, actually, that must be a kilonova. Is that what happened? Or how rare are they? And, and, and how do they sort of get discovered? So they are very rare. The calculation that led to the term kilonova is actually from 2010, so it's not even that old. <laughs> it's really recent science, that stuff. Uh, so actually, we don't know exactly how rare they are. We know they're bare, very bare. Uh, maybe you, um, uh, between 100 times and 10,000 times or a few thousand times rarer than, um, than typical supernovae, than Corgolab supernovae, something like that. But it's a very approximate number because we don't have a rate for these kilos because we, don't, we haven't seen many. <laughs> So we don't know, we can't tell you, well, you know, we see about uh, that many per, um, per galaxy or that, or that kind of stuff. So roughly one in every 10,000 years in a galaxy like, like the Milky Way, roughly, like this is within one or two orders of magnitude. Whereas for a supernova, it's, a, it's two per century, roughly. Oh, wow. Okay. Big so difference. It, it, yeah, it's a big difference, um, but they are they're both relatively rare but the, the kilonovi are, are very rare indeed very rare. Um, i had a question about the end times or potential end times um so once upon a time people believed that the universe would end um with a big collapse where the universe basically just collapses on itself and is reborn through another big bang and that's pretty much been rejected by scientists now i believe so how do scientists believe the universe will end now or like will it end it's so i think the thing you're mentioning is something that used to be called the big crunch or something like that so we've got the big bang at the start and then and then collapses and etc um so the problem with this um theory is that the the universe is expanding and it's expanding faster and faster and faster so it's it's something that we can actually measure uh through supernovae so not the core collapse uh, supernovae but a different type that is even brighter and so we can see them from further away uh, they can allow us to measure how fast their galaxy or their, their like their location is moving away from us so everywhere in the universe is move, moving away from us and wherever you are in the universe everything is moving away from you well like on the global scale so if you're within a galaxy there are some stars coming towards you etc etc there's local effects right but on a global scale everything is expanding and the thing, the thing is, the speed at which things is moving away from you gets higher and higher the further away you look. And so we know the expansion of the universe is accelerating. Um, and that was actually a Nobel Prize, I think, in 20 something, 2011? I can't remember. Anyway, <laughs> so, so, something not <laughs> 10, 15 years ago. It was actually a Nobel Prize. Um, uh, so that, that's a problem because that means that it can't collapse or it doesn't look like it's going to collapse again. Uh, so either there's something we don't understand about the physics uh, or that's just what's going to happen. So everything's going to keep getting further and further away from each other. So what that means is 
which is going to end up with a big load of nothing. <laughs> the universe is very empty at the moment and it's only going to get emptier. So there's going to get a, we're going to get to a point where there's not going to be enough gas to make new stars, where old stars have lived their lives and died. Uh, it, it, it will take a while. So some of the lower, lower mass stars in the universe live for trillions of years. So they're still like kind of doing their thing and not doing much actually, they're, but they're, they're not going to do much for trillions of years and then they live their life and die. Um, white dwarfs will uh, stay uh, really hot for a long time and then cool down. Uh, black holes will evaporate eventually. But, you know, these, these like eventually <laughs> things are very, very far away in time. <laughs> Black holes evaporate at a ridiculously slow rate, especially when they're big. So for example, a black hole that's the mass of the sun would take 10 to the 67 years or something to evaporate. So that's one wow. with 67 zeros. Like you can't even, like it doesn't even make sense. Even if you're using logarithms, it makes no sense. Like, like the universe is 14 billion years old. That's 1.4, 10 to the 10. And you're adding another 57, like, no, <laughs> it makes no sense. So for all intents and purposes, uh, for, for what we're doing, uh, things are just going to get further away. And, uh, and that's pretty much, pretty much where we are at the moment. So it doesn't kind of end then. It just, yeah. it just, well, I mean, in a sense, it just dies. Yeah, there's more empty space until. But I mean, there's no, in, how to put it, like, the universe will not i mean there will still be stuff around at some point yeah, but it's just really far away really, really far, far away from each other yeah, so for all of his purposes the world will the universe will end just by like all parts of the universe are so scattered that they can't interact anymore and it just like, kind of and it's a big freeze it's basically everything just cools down and 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 becomes black and that's it wow that's that's nice. That's cool. <laughs> That's kind of, it's, it's kind of depressing, if I'm honest. I mean, that, that, also, that also kind of speaks to how young the universe is at the moment, because you're talking about, what, 10 to the 57, 67, or whatever it was, an insane number, and we're only really young, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, realistically, we can't... Like that's kind of assuming that we understand all of the physics, et cetera, et cetera. Right, like we right, don't even right. understand how we don't know and we can't know how the Big Bang happened, you know? Like that's kind of our instant zero because we can't look beyond it. We can't look behind it. Mm. Um, so what causes the Big Bang? Is it something that happened just the once? Is it something that is an incredibly weird and rare event that can happen again? But say it happens every 10 to the 46 years which is a stupidly big number, but it's still smaller than, you know, mm -hmm. how long it takes for like, so I'm not a cosmologist. Don't take that word. Like, you know, I'm an astronomer, but not a cosmologist. So this is just me speculating as yeah. a, an also lay person. Um, but there are things that we don't, uh, these scales are so large that, you know, in extrapolating our, our current understanding of physics for the world that, you know, we are seeing now may be a bit of a stretch. Something else that you recently talked about, which I find really interesting, is a discovery of water on the moon. And you talked about how humans could use this possibly as a fuel stop for heading to Mars or other places. Um, I wanted to know, do, do you think it's actually possible that humans can use this as a fuel stop and also that they can end up 
getting to Mars? So I think that NASA even has posters about uh, potentially using the moon as a fuel stop. You can definitely use water um, uh, to help you refuel because water has everything that you need. It's got hydrogen and oxygen. And if you split them, you have your oxygen and your hydrogen, the thing that burns and the thing that helps it burn. So that's perfect. Uh, in fact, if you've read The Martian or seen The Martian, um, there's a whole like section where he turns uh, like fuel into water. So he goes the other way around. <laughs> um, so it is technical in theory. Uh, it is uh, possible in theory, but in practice, uh, we'll have to see, I guess. Uh, I'm not, you know, so uh, concerned with the, the, the aerospace needs or the, or the goals of NASA or other people going to space. Uh, but it's definitely something that people are starting to think about because there's been some like accords written and, and, and signed by people. Um, because, uh, you know, the possibility of getting to the moon and using the resources of the moon is, is, is getting, uh, is getting close. It's, it's, it's looking like a possibility, something that, that would happen in the near future. Yeah. I mean, you've also said in your blog that, um, quote, billionaires are already making space as a playground and monetizing the night sky. If you think that Elon Musk has uh, made Starlink out of the kindness of his heart and not for profit get off my website in <laughs> quote love that by the way <laughs> yeah. um but how do you feel about the pivot from space being a scientific and sort of you know geopolitical sort of arena to a for-profit one as in as in trying to sort of like squeeze out some cash out of space and what sort of things should we should we be looking out for as a, as a sort of a regular person So you, you talk of a transition and I see it, but I feel like uh, it's actually the same as it's always been. Uh, space is a playground for egotistical people. Uh, and it's the greatest peeing contest in the, in, in, in the, in the world. Uh, like when we had the space race between the US and Russia, it's not because the governments cared about science. It's because they wanted to be the first there because, you know, our, like, our economic system is better than yours and my dick is, better, is bigger than yours and screw you. And I got my big rocket on Mars. Elon Musk and Bezos and the other guy uh, like racing each other uh, to space is less about them making money because they're probably, they're probably using a lot of the money that they've like amassed from exploiting workers. Uh, just because they want to do it. They want to be some of the first civilians to go into space and, and to do it privately. And they raised each other. They raised each other. And they, they, they even like argued about the, the, the limit of space. Like they, they, they redefined it to be 80 kilometers instead of 100 kilometers because the virgin guy couldn't go to it. Like it's, yeah, it's, it's insane. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. all about egos and, and it's all enshrouded in marketing. But it's just it's just a pissing contest, and it's it's ridiculous. Uh, some of the things we need to look out for is that they are kind of hiding like the, the the whole nonsense of it of like we have climate change issues, we have wealth inequalities issues, we have all of these problems that um, are part of a system that has helped these people get to space, and they're using the space tourism and like selling the notion that you too will be able to get to space. If I can go to space, maybe you can too soon. That's just a distraction. Elon's going to space, you're not going to space. You're, you're not going to Mars. Like, 
<laughs> or if you like they were talking about going going to mars and 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 instead of paying you can just work for him like that's well that's slavery like what the hell like some of the things that people are are, are, are reinventing to justify some of these things is insane um so we need to to not let ourselves be distracted by some of the some of the dreams that they're they're trying to sell us because uh, it's it's just a distraction i mean elon musk is sort of he's like the hero in this sort of poster boy for so many i don't know what, what whatever kind of person i mean say what you will about the guy but i don't know he's he's revered by many and what are your thoughts i mean he's explicitly said that like we need to be in multi planetary species in order to survive over the next blah 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 uh and that's one of his primary motivating factors for him when he's got to mars and stuff you think that's all you know crap or what what's your thought of, what's your thoughts about that it's motivated by science at all. Elon Musk, like people talk about Elon Musk, like he's some engineering genius or scientific genius. He's a like business major. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a business person. He's a, he's a marketing person. There's other people doing the science and being motivated by science. When when Elon Musk talks about science, you, you clearly start to see that there's nothing behind when he was talking about Starlink like oh it's fine we'll make them like less bright blah 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 or like they, they won't be visible it's like we see them in the telescope my dude like you didn't talk to anyone clearly there's like this no light in the attic um and i i think it's just marketing or or maybe he or maybe just ego maybe he genuinely thinks as a person who doesn't actually think about it that much that oh we should go to like other planets and i will be the person that takes humanity to other planets without actually having having given it much thought like realistically if we are going to prioritize our resources right now we need to make sure that we don't kill the planet that we're currently on because we're currently not on other planets so i don't think it's motivated by science in any way shape or form love it <laughs> yeah um yeah preach it sis um <laughs> i my question was really along the, those lines and particularly what you just said there at the end you know there's a real debate going on right now we've had a lot of tourists going up into space recently and on one side, we have people saying that it's really good to get as many people into space as possible so they can advocate for uh, space and exploration more generally. Um, and then on the other hand, you have people saying it's a waste of money and money can be better spent, money and resources can be better spent on other parts of science or like you say, on um, looking after the planet that we have here. Can you elaborate a little bit more on your feelings around that? that uh, it's, it's a waste of money to send uh, Bezos to, to space. I mean, what is he going to advocate? Like, we, we already have an inter international space station with trained astronauts that have spent years honing their skills in engineering and different scientific fields so that they can conduct experiments in zero gravity for other scientists on Earth who, can't, who don't have access to, to these labs. So they do it for other scientists and then send the results back to Earth. They do a tremendous amount of science communication through like live, um, um, live, live interviews and talks. They talk to school children, they, they talk to people through Twitter and, and, and other things. That stuff exists already. We don't need we don't need the billionaires of the world to go make space their playground without asking anyone. 
it's that <laughs> there's no middle ground needed here this isn't a oh well but i can see both sides no no these are not just space tourists this is not your grandma going to see the curvature of the earth before uh before her 90th birthday this is billionaires just using yeah. the ridiculous amount of resources that they've amassed that makes no sense that makes absolutely no sense in order to just go and play with their massive rockets it's it's incredible we've gotten to that point <laughs> yeah absolutely it's become a dick measuring contest more than anything else I, oh my god have you seen the shape of the rocket that bezos went in i yes, mean did so... it have to look like that oh they knew because that necessary they knew. I mean, come on <laughs> like if you had written that in a book or yeah, if you'd yeah. made that in like in a in the plot of a movie you'd be you'd look at this like no that's it that, that's not exactly. even subtle. like, yeah, like yeah, go yeah, home yeah. Yeah. yeah i'd love to hear what um some of the audience thinks about this eh? because i, I think this would this particular part of what we're talking about would be quite divisive for us a lot of people i know there'd be a lot of people out there would be like actually what these guys are doing is really good and da, 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 da. so i know there'd be a lot of people who might push back on what you've said i'd love to hear what people oh, think okay. and i and i have my own thoughts i sit on your side eloise um but that's you know a debate for another day um just moving on a little bit before we move on to some of your more personal aspects of being an, an astrophysicist but i got one question for you which is like the big sort of pie in the sky stuff. What, in your opinion, is the single most uh, exciting development in astrophysics that you believe you'll see in your lifetime? I think that I've already seen it. <laughs> I think that the major, the, the biggest scientific discovery in astronomy of my lifetime has already been done. And that's the observation of gravitational waves. Like, I think that is so pivotal and and such a, a, a milestone uh, people have had been trying to do it for decades and now it is something that we do regularly again we in the sense of the role we i do not go and observe gravitational waves i don't understand it fully um but it's something that is done routinely and that we astronomers that look at transients and things that go boom in the night sky we can use those results in order to better understand the objects that we see um, so gravitational waves for people who are not aware, it's ripples in the fabric of space-time that are um, uh, uh, sent away by binary systems, especially uh, uh, binary systems of very, very compact objects. So two neutron stars really close to each other, spinning around each other, or two black holes spinning around each other. Uh, as these two compact objects rotate around each other, because they they are so dense, they, they create a massive... Um, um, like deformation, like in uh, in the in the shape of the the fabric of space time, because mass changes the fabric of space time. In general relativity, I'm not going to go into the details because the mass is horrible. Um, but because they spin around each other, you can imagine that it's like wiggling a sheet essentially, and those ripples just move away. And essentially, what it does is that it it, it changes the space. Uh, it it moves it moves things uh, very, very briefly. Um, and you can detect that if you try hard enough. The problem is that the shift in space is of order 10 to the minus 21 meters. So that's 0, 0.0, that's 21 zeros and a one. It's a, like when I was telling you that I came to this job to look at big and small numbers, like really like, 
you know, I've really got what I wanted. Uh, it's smaller, like a thousand times smaller than the diameter of an atomic nucleus. And that really blows my mind because the fact that it can detect shifts in space time that is smaller than an atomic nucleus is insane. It's, 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 it's really crazy. So in order to do that, they need really big mirrors, really long um, dis distances between the mirrors and really powerful lasers that can go between the mirrors like loads and loads and loads of times because obviously your mirror is going to shift so your mirror has to be isolated from every motion on earth like nothing can make it can make it move not someone walking past uh, um, a, a van driving uh, above your detector um, or like just the earth shaking because the earth shakes a lot so completely isolated from every movement so the only thing that makes it move will be uh, the gravitational wave. And then as your laser bounces off of it repeatedly, eventually you're going to detect a shift in the um, um, location of your mirror compared to like another mirror that you have. So the detectors have uh, two mirrors at a 90 degree angle. And that allows you to see those gravitational waves. But uh, it's a very difficult technique that uh, requires so much technology, loads of machine learning to like um, analyze the signal and actually get them. But we've seen like over 50, 90, like between 50 and 100 gravitational waves from black hole mergers. I just, uh, well, I just, I have heaps of questions. We have to move on. Epic. We can do a debrief after. And uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, it's blow like people's right minds. Now. Yeah. No, it's, I just, <laughs> but it's awesome. I love this stuff. It's so great. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Epic. Okay, right. let's let's turn to your blog. You have a pretty epic blog. Um, and one of those blog pieces literally made me laugh out loud. That was the one called Why Boys Just Aren't Made for Science. Oh, that is my favorite. Um, listeners, you know, we'll give you the details later on, but honestly, hop on this blog and read this piece. It is it is wonderful and it's so hilarious. But but really, I mean, why it made me laugh because it highlights so well how ridiculous some of those age-old gender norms are like for example that women are too emotional to be logical and so forth um do you think this is changing for women in science and like what are some of the barriers that you think do still exist yeah so definitely science is a, is a different place that it used to be there's you know not every field is the same not every group within a field is the same um so it has changed in in many ways uh, there remains a lot of systemic issues, uh, a lot of unconscious bias, um, and it's and that's really difficult, really tricky to address. Like I've I've observed, seen some of these things, and tried to like have conversations with you know line managers and things like that, and it's very difficult to address these things because when all of them are literally middle-aged white men who do not understand, you know. <laughs> some of the concepts that um, come with you know oppression at large uh, that are or just not being in the majority group there's loads of concepts they struggle wrapping their head around you know they, they they'll see conflict and they'll think oh it's just a problem you know it's not it's a, a, a little bit of a, um, um, a, a personality clash it's like no it's not a personality clash it's literally you know, professional sabotage, maybe you should be doing something about this, you know. <laughs> um, but obviously, uh, it's because it's so subtle, it's very difficult to address, because people 
uh, that are in charge that don't have the education about systemic uh, oppression of all kinds. You know, it's not just women in science. It's not just white women in science. It's, it's all kinds of systemic issues for all, all kinds of minorities. Because a lot of the people in charge don't understand how systemic oppression works, they, they want to be the good guy, they want to be the good person, and so they, they, they have a tendency to not want to think about it too much, and that just makes it worse. So the, there's a lot of progress that's been made. I know a lot of people that are very active uh, in uh, helping uh, minorities uh, thrive in the field, um, but I also have seen a lot of apathy and a lot of denial uh, a lot of excuses, a lot of, oh, it's not like that, uh, you know, uh, oh, you know, they're just in a bad mood, uh, oh, you know, they're just, they're, no, <laughs> like, there comes a time where you actually have to, to do something, um, and uh, another aspect of, uh, of being a woman in science that, you know, it's not talked about enough, I think, is the fact that there's a lot of issues that we can't solve within the system of astronomy alone there's systemic issues on the scale of society mm -hmm. so when you're looking at be being a scientist being a scientist realistically takes a lot of your time it's mm -hmm. a it's a it's a big it's a big investment big time investment and someone who can do that without having to take most of the front of childcare, uh, do most of the household chores will have an edge over someone mm -hmm. who even just 50 percent let's say perfectly equal perfect relationship 50 50 you're still at a disadvantage compared to the 50 year old dude who's got a stay-at-home wife who's you know always made his dinner like realistically speaking it's not it's not the same thing and and you know there's some things that are being done to try and you know um help people who have uh, childcare uh, needs etc etc but it's it's far from perfect at the moment. So we also, also read, uh, we also read um, in your blog that someone once told you that you, you were too pretty to be a scientist. I mean, I, it's appalling. God, he was, he was so dumb. Yeah. What a delightful human. Um, cool, cool, cool. Fortunately, I've not met that, that many that are like that. Engineering is worse than my area of science. He was an engineer. Right. Engineering is a lot worse. Right. It's, it's a lot more male dominated. And a lot mm. of the, the women in, in engineering that I, some of the women in engineering I've met have got a lot of um, internalized uh, misogyny as well, um, which can, can make it, uh, can make it uh, a little bit difficult for other women to enter the field too. So just speaking on that a little bit, I mean, what are some of the things that you would say to other men in particular, whether it's in science or engineering or any of those other STEM sort of areas to make things a little bit better and not to come off like an asshole, basically? <laughs> with like obvious misogyny like the, the the hating women things uh it's um it's looking it's looking into toxic masculinity and resolving that within you because a lot of the um uh, unconscious biases and like the the subtle misogyny that you see in the in those fields is stems from toxic masculinity like the the, the idea that they have of what it 
it means to be a man and what they and what they must be and all of that kind of stuff and that can be a barrier to uh to a lot of um uh to a lot of women uh especially if they are feminine um like the the kind of I can't think of a of an example straight away, but uh, you know, if 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 your if your friend who's a who's a lady uh, in your engineering class talks about something she's really excited about, or or like little things like comes in with a pumpkin spice latte that she really enjoys, and you make a joke about her being a basic girl, that kind of stuff, you know, all of that low key hating on things that women enjoy, like yucking their yum for no reason whatsoever, all of these little things just ends up being a death by, by a thousand cuts it makes you not welcome um and if you see other guys like acting like that you can just look look at them straight in the eye and be like how is that funny like you know what was what was the point of that just challenge them like you don't have to be aggressive you can just be straight with them and be like how was that funny like why why did you say that well what was the point of that um because some of these things are just habits because you see it all over the internet you see it in movies you see it everywhere in your life um and and you you know pass them off as oh it's just a joke but realistically it's not just a joke like there are people that are very often the butt of the joke and very often made to feel like they are the other uh so if you can try and fight that little fight every day um you'll be making some people's lives a lot easier yeah that's awesome and i mean look these are not hard things. These are very basic things that we're asking men to, to either not do or, or to say. Um, and it still blows my mind that in 2021, um, we still have this, this happening in our workplace. And I mean, I had an example of it just a couple of days ago. I was having a political um, debate conversation with a male colleague and another male colleague overheard and said to me, oh, you're a little firecracker. And I didn't think about it at the time, but afterwards I reflected and I thought, he, he didn't say that about my male colleague and he wouldn't call one of my male colleagues a, a, a little firecracker. But because I'm a woman and because I'm engaging in an intellectual political debate, um, that seemed to be like beyond the norms of what my gender or what female should be engaging in. So yeah, it, it makes my skin crawl that this is still happening. Um, yeah. so been, try and call it out aggressive when standing my ground for things and, mm. and stuff like that knowing very well that it was BS yeah so absolutely um, but yeah. we're our last question for tonight I mean there are so many more questions that we have but <laughs> maybe we're gonna have to get you on again for a part two um, well when you're not smashing the patriarchy you're smashing people in roller derby I hear um that's pretty epic so what do you enjoy most about roller derby and and if you feel comfortable we'd love to hear a little bit about how that's been part of your personal healing journey I, I do roller derby uh, for those of you that don't know what that is it's a bunch of people on wee shoes that uh, uh, go smashing each other uh, not in the face fortunately <laughs> uh, around a rink uh, to uh, to try and score as many points as possible it's like rugby on wheels without the ball but you're the ball basically um, and it's it's just such an amazing sport and such an amazing environment I just I've never had a sport that I enjoyed doing before I started doing roller derby. I didn't necessarily enjoy exercise because exercise for my entire life was this thing marketed at, you know, having a certain body type or having a certain weight goal, that kind of stuff. And 
for the first time in my life, I was enjoying just getting sweaty and really like, you know, feeling strong. Um, and, and it was, and it was amazing. And there's the camaraderie as well with the, with the roller derby, uh, people that it cannot be, uh, overstated. Like it's the kind of competition that I've never, ever encountered in my life because every competitive environment I'd ever been in was very male dominated, very macho, if that makes sense. So I don't, I don't want to like make it necessarily a gender thing, but it's the traditional patriarchy macho thing. Whereas the competitive environment of roller derby in like some leagues are better than others, but in the leagues I was at, because it was very um, 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 female dominated or like uh, non, uh, uh, non-male, we've got non-binary people as well, um, and, uh, and, and very queer as well. So very, very far away from the heteronormative like things that we have in society. It's a completely different view of uh, competitivity. Like you're super competitive in everything, but if someone like from the other team comes and smashes you and they did awesome, you'll be like, oh my God, that was brilliant. Like that was, that was great. There's so much support and that comes hand in hand with the competition. And I didn't know that was possible, that you could still, you know, have the, that you could have those two things in parallel. Um, now, when it comes to my healing journey, one of the, I've kind of alluded to that already, but the, the thing with roller derby is that it's kind of helped me rekindle my relationship with my body. Because I used to have an eating disorder, super common for people my age. I was born in 1993. So I grew up in the late 90s, early 2000s, skinny, dead bodies, running, uh, walking on the runways, that kind of stuff. Um, and that's kind of the, the, the image that was, um, that we were told we were supposed to look like. And for the first time in my life, I really had, uh, a complete change of mindset where instead of thinking about what my body should look like, I was more focused, entirely focused essentially on what my body could do on the things I could achieve. Um, on on improving my performance, on on feeling like I was getting faster and stronger and 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 more effective, you know, with my with my teammates, and you know, it's been a while. I, I've you know, not had a full blown eating disorder since my early twenties, but uh, that really has helped kind of tie a neat bow around that you know not so fun history and really put it on the shelf. Wow, that's. Uh... That's cool. I, I do we are we saying it wrong? I always thought it was Derby, but it's it's Derby, is it? I said Derby because I lived in England for a long time, and Derby uh, is the okay. city. Okay. So it's yeah, you can say roller derby. It's probably supposed to be Derby, but I said Derby because I said like the city. It's not the same. Like come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Eloise, for coming on the show. I I have I could sit down with like you for hours and ask you heaps of questions, but um I don't know. Let's not do that because it'll be a bit strange. But um. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show. And where can people find your blog and, and some of the work that you've that you've put out there? Oh, thank you so much for having me here. And uh, if you want to catch me uh, later, you can find me on Twitter at Sidonahi. It's really weirdly spelled, so bear with me. It's S-Y-D-O-N-A-H-I. So you can find me on Twitter at Sidonahi. You can find me on TikTok at Sidonahi as well. And you can find me on my website at H.F. Stevens, spelled S-T-E-V-A-N-C-E, so the French way, dot com. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for sharing about your amazing mahi, your work, and also some of your personal story as well. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me.
great evening. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bex, it was a bit of a longer one that we anticipated. I had lots of questions as you, as you heard. It was. I know we could have kept going. Yeah, I'm annoying like that. I'm just like, oh, I just got to ask the question. It's like, I put, but I'm like, put, Mike, <laughs> the patriarchy. Let's get into the patriarchy. Yeah. I'm just like, oh. Because <laughs> the thing about it is like, I, I listen to lots of space podcasts and I um, watch lots of space documentaries and everything. That's just how I came across her anyway. But I'm like, I don't get the, I don't ever get the opportunity to, to talk to an astrophysicist. So I'm just like, I, I got to sneak one in there. Anyways, it's, because it's a little bit longer, um, we're gonna not do the debrief as you as we normally would. And you know what would really help us out if you subscribe and do all that stuff. I don't, everyone does it at the end of their part of this other. It's like, oh, shut up. Well, if you send me a screenshot, I'll that you've done it. I'll buy a nice block. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Um, but we'll see everybody next week. Next week. Subscribe. Uh, hit us up on Instagram. Yeah. Email us. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Use the social media channels. Do it. All right, bye-bye. See you next week. Kia ora.